This week on WealthTrack, top-rated research team members Don Rissmiller and Nick Bonesack assess the likelihood of recession and a bear market. Strategus Research Partners' dynamic duo is next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. 2019 could be a year for the record books. The economic expansion turns 10 this summer, thereafter becoming the longest recovery ever. The bull market reached that milestone in August of 2018, and despite serious fits and starts, has continued its run. The S&P clocked in its best January performance since 1987 with an 8% gain. If the Federal Reserve has its way, both the economy and market will continue to advance. In its January policy-setting meeting, the Fed announced it was putting its interest rate increases on hold for now. The policy-setting Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, announced that in seeking its dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability, it would, quote, maintain the target range for the federal funds rate at two and a quarter to two and a half percent. According to the Wall Street Journal, this is the first time that the Fed dropped explicit references to future interest rate increases that have been in its monetary policy statement since 2015. Yet a closer look at the Fed's dual objectives is reassuring. The civilian unemployment rate remains near historic lows around 4%, with the percentage of the working age population participating above 60%. That is considered full employment. Meanwhile, prices remain stable. The Fed's preferred inflation measure, the core PCE, that's the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, minus volatile food and energy prices, remains well within its 2% target. Why, then, is the Federal Reserve pausing, and is anxiety growing about a possible recession and bear market among business leaders and professional investors? Well, joining us for the first time on WealthTrack are two key members of Strategus Research Partners, a top-rated macro research firm by Institutional Investor. Don Rissmiller is a co-founder and partner of Strategus, where he is the chief economist, director of the firm's macroeconomic research efforts, and oversees its thematic research as well as high-frequency econometric forecasting. Nicholas Bonesack is also a co-founder and partner, head of quantitative research, and directs the firm's equity sector strategy and global asset allocation efforts. He is also president and CEO of Strategus Asset Management, the firm's registered investment advisor, which was started in 2014. Bonesack is portfolio manager on four thematic portfolios launched in recent years, dividend growth, earnings momentum, and new sovereigns portfolios, and the policy opportunity strategy. Well, how worried is this team about the likelihood of recession? That's where our conversation began. Well, certainly a fair question to ask because we're going to hit the longest cycle the U.S. has ever had this summer. So if we make it to this summer, we're going to be 10 years into this business cycle. Right. It's going to match the 1990s, and that'll be the longest cycle the U.S. has ever had. So in some sense, we're due. However, if you look at the cycle in terms of total growth instead of the calendar, there's nothing exceptional about it. It has not been a very robust cycle when it comes to total growth. So I'm not that worried about a recession. I think when we look at the recent confidence numbers, we could think we're trying to talk ourselves into recession sometimes. Right. Some of the drops that we've seen have been quite sharp, but they have some obvious explanations, like some of the uncertainty around the government shutdown. And my point would be that's been resolved. So we would expect those confidence numbers to bounce back, especially with some of the labor market data being as strong as it has been. 
So I think it's fair to ask the question about recession. We could talk about being a later cycle environment, but recession is an extreme case. It's a contagion event, and I don't see it. Okay. And Nick, as far as the markets are concerned, how worried do the markets seem to be about the potential for a recession? Well, I think if we looked at what happened last fall, Mm -hmm. right, we clearly had a a high degree of concern, and that seems to have alleviated itself, you know, over the last handful of weeks, January, fourth or fifth best January on record in, in, uh, you know, a long number of years. Right. And ultimately, the market's a function of earnings and interest rates. And so, as Don mentions, we and the Fed have just alleviated the interest rate problem, so to speak. Ostensibly, they're going to be on hold for a period of time. And so now it's an intensity of focus on corporate profits. And quite frankly, there's a lot of focus on the change in the second derivative. So this idea that a year ago we grew at 20% and now we might grow 5 or 6 or 7%. I'm less worried about that. We can get into all those pieces. Um, but the reality is many of the corporate profit reports for the fourth quarter have been very strong, and I think the guidance has surprised to the upsides. So what I don't get is, is why then did the Fed pause? What caused it to pause in its interest rate hikes? If we're not worried about recession, like what is the Fed worried about? Well, they have been raising interest rates. They've been raising interest right. rates for quite a long time, actually. We started in 2015 with one hike. Yeah. And we got one hike in 2016, we got three hikes in 2017, and we got four hikes last year. So based on all of history, that's not an exceptionally fast path. But interest rates around the world are still quite low. Mm-hmm. So we're getting to territory that can start to be considered neutral. And I think that's a reason to think about pausing, to say, okay, we've done some work for four years here. Can we step back, see what happens? And when you looked at some of the interest rate sensitive sectors like housing or autos or capital spending, you were starting to see some effect. So some of the housing data was looking toppy. The auto sales data has flattened out over the past several years. Capital spending has some question marks, though that could be related to other uh, events as well. So I think it was wise to say we're getting to a rate that looks like it's a neutral rate. We can take our time. And by the way, the inflation numbers aren't rushing us. Mm-hmm. Oil prices have fallen sharply over the last several months. And so there wasn't any urgency. If you think back to when Chairman Bernanke was going into the Yellen regime and, and they talked about removing these policy accommodations, they were first going to do balance sheet runoff. And that right. caused the market a lot of consternation. So they reversed. They've done the rate component. And now with rates sort of getting to a level that's viewed as, as sort of somewhat normalized, uh, now the focus is back on the balance sheet. And so it, it wasn't as long ago as August or July where we were sitting here talking about really robust economy, you know, very strong market mm-hmm. for the year end, people generally bullish in their optimism, and that changed overnight. But I would say this is a pause, not a stop necessarily. Right. Okay. The idea of pausing is you could hike again after some period of time. So right. I don't think they've said we're done for sure. They said we're going to take stock of what's gone on. We're going to see how some of these lagged effects work because we do know monetary policy acts with a lag. And I I would just add one last piece. If there's any ambiguity from a market perspective, it was whether we were in the mid-cycle or the late cycle. And I think what this episode in the last three or four months have done is to say, no, no, we're in the late cycle now. So you feel that in the, you know, we were talking about, you know, this summer we're going to have the longest economic recovery on record. We had um, what the I think the longest bull market on record last year in 2018. Yep. So what about I mean how you know it, it, the, again investors' perception of where we are in the market cycle 
Is there concern out there? Well, my only concern is that people see enamored with, they seem enamored with the x-axis. They always want to measure things mm-hmm. as a function of time. Right. And I'm more interested in the degree of activity that's happening. So thinking about that from the y-axis perspective, you know, is the employment market strong enough? Do interest rates support? Are profits and sales? And in that, from that vantage point, I think we can go a little bit longer. The idea that investors have to get around to is that we are slowing. Mm-hmm. And so we're moving from a, a, you know, the, the accelerating expansion to the slowing expansion phase. And mercifully, over the last four or five business cycles, that's been the longest phase of the business cycle as well. So it's, it's not to say that this is going to be over very quickly. It's just that we're transitioning to a different regime. Right. So, so one of the things I know that when, when I've talked to other analysts, they basically said that you know, the things that are reassuring to them are the lack of excesses. And I think, Don, that's what you were, one of the things you were referring to as well. And so the lack of excess in the markets. Well, it's, it's difficult to say on an earnings perspective yeah. that we are at an excess as well. And I think you had a chance at making a slightly stronger argument towards that end at, in 2017. Mm-hmm. But the tax cut just served to uh, you know, impact the denominator in such a way that multiples on the earnings basis have reset. Right. However, so, so when you said impact, so the, yeah. the earnings went up, yeah. So and, the, and therefore the, the price earnings multiples actually went down. Went down. Yeah. Right. And and to say nothing of the fact that we then had a sell off. Right. Right. At the end of the year. So from yeah. a PE perspective, you know, the market's not uh, it's not rich, but it's also not wildly uh, inexpensive either. If there's an area for concern that investors should think about, it's some of these other metrics. You know, mm-hmm. what, what does price to book look like? Well, that's expensive. What mm-hmm. is enterprise value to EBITDA? If you can bring in the debt side of the equation, that's expensive. So mm-hmm. we want to be mindful of some of those, but stocks don't look wildly, uh, wildly expensive to us here. Right. One of the things, Don, that you and I talked about uh, when I talked to you before uh, this interview was that so, so many of, of us observers, CEOs, um, you know, investors are focused on what's going on, all the noise coming out of Washington. You said it's very important to distinguish between policy and, um, and the politics. Yeah. So explain, you know, help me do that, you know, yeah. help us do that. And it's hard to distinguish the two sometimes, but we're thinking about it from an investment point of view. So we want to ask, does what we're talking about influence interest rates? does what we're talking about, influence company earnings, because those are the building blocks. Right. The debt ceiling fight could matter. Do we replace some of the sequester cuts that are in the budget? These matter. Some of the other things matter much less. And so if we make some progress on those, that's important. We'd also watch the tariffs. Mm -hmm. And especially if we get a trade deal with China, do we pivot somewhere else? Do we pivot to Germany? Do we pivot to cars in the euro Area. So you mean, do we, does the Trump administration decide, OK, I've taken care of China now, I'm going to go after. Yeah, the hope would be that China trade deal will be a punctuation mark. The concern would be a trade deal is just the first step to another trade war. Right. And I think when you look back last fall, some of the things that started to really worry the market were man-made, if you will. Right. We had the, the Powell was deemed going too quickly. The administration was trying to fight trade on too many fronts. And I think the administration's advisor said, listen, Mr. President, you can have one of these battles. You can't have both. Mm-hmm. And so you'll notice that the, the European car conversation has gone to constructive dialogue, second, 11th, 12th page, you know, below right. the fold. It's all China. When that gets cleaned up one way or the other, it probably comes back to the fore. One of the things that you told me that you are watching very closely is what is going on with China. And could China drag the U.S. down, basically? Could China throw us into a recession if it slows enough? And what's, what's your outlook? So the Chinese slowdown, or the slowdown in the China economy, was generally made in China. 
Yes. There was a deleveraging campaign that started well before the trade talks. That's what slowed China down fundamentally. Mm -hmm. The trade issue probably pushed them down a little more, but this was mainly an issue that started uh, there. And so the turnaround is going to have to start there, too. Now, we've seen some stimulus in China. We've seen some uh, changes on the tax side. We've seen some changes in the reserve requirements. So it looks like the government is caught on. It looks like they want to do some additional stimulus. That should flow through to the money supply numbers. And so we're seeing the things that should start to put a bottom in in China. They haven't worked that well yet. So if you were to describe the stimulus thus far, you would use phrases like pushing on a string. So this hasn't worked as well as it might have. If you look at retail sales, they're still slowing. As an example, production would be another series we could look at. So there has been a slowdown. There's been some additional factors like the tariffs which have come into play. If those get resolved and you get the stimulus in China, we think you can turn that around in 2019. And the if, uh, I mean, how likely do you think that is? How concerned are you about China's ability to bring the rest of the world to a much slower place? It clearly matters more outside the U.S. Yeah, if you look it at the impacts okay. of China on right. European economies, if you look at it on the Japanese, uh, that does matter. Uh, the U.S. is a little more insulated. And we've Mm -hmm. looked at global recessions back to the 1970s. And we don't have that much data, but the data we do have suggests that the U.S. has always gone first. So it's the U.S. that tends to lead those global recessions. Now, China's getting bigger. It's getting more important. It's getting more interconnected. uh, But still, the U.S. has some insulation from that. So I'd be more worried about outside the U.S. than Mm -hmm. inside the U.S. Should we go that far? But I don't think we go that far. I think we're already starting to see some bottoming process. So, Nick, from an asset allocation point of view, you know, if we are later in the market cycle, yeah. which we are in the economic cycle, um, so w- what works in this kind of an, an environment? Yeah, I think you have to consider from two vantage points, right? The first is what's going on globally, and right. clearly there's a distinction to be drawn between the developed uh, international markets and the emerging international markets. And the emerging international markets actually look pretty good to us, mm-hmm. uh, principally because we don't see a recession imminently on the horizon. So that's the first part. Okay. So you don't see a recession imminently in the horizon in the emerging markets? or Well, principally in the United States. Okay. And so if you think about... And so therefore... As a supplier of raw and intermediate... from our global... I mean, from our strength. Right. So as, okay. a, as a provider of raw and intermediate term, inter- intermediate goods, uh, you know, our demand would maintain its levels, and as, as such, they would continue to see the demand you know, go and, and do pretty well. And so from an allocation standpoint, uh, that's worked out. Yep. I think to get to the question more from a domestic footing, the big tension seems to be gnawing at this idea of whether we should be in growth stocks. Will mm-hmm. that trend continue as it has for mm-hmm. the better part of a decade? Uh, or should we be migrating into value? And right. I think the lesson that's interesting here is that the growth dominance has coincided with the uh, development of the ETF market. It's coincided with low uh, nominal uh, interest rates and low nominal growth Mm -hmm. uh, and financial repression. Uh, And so there's this herd mentality where security selection has not been something that's been dearly rewarded. That's probably changing. And the other observation I think we'd make is that if you look back last fall and really through the the end of the sell-off in uh, in December, value did quite well. And so there's a narrative out there that says if the economy is slowing but outperforms expectations, value becomes a very interesting proposition as well. And so we've actually, from an allocation perspective, and to your question, we've increased our exposure to value and we've decreased our exposure uh, to growth uh, over the intermediate term, which I think of as being, you know, six to 12 months sort of time horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, value looks actually fairly attractive to us here 
uh, if the economy surprises to the upside. So the active versus passive debate as well, and I know that Strategas has been uh, saying for, I think for a couple of years now, that, that you felt that active would outperform passive, yeah. right? Yeah. And that security selection mattered, and which um, is music to your client's ears, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. But at any rate, it hasn't necessarily panned out. Yeah. Right? So, so why would uh, individual security selection work better now than it has uh, in the recent past? So I think it gets back to this idea of earnings and interest rates, mm -hmm. principally, right? So to the extent to which you move into the latter stages of the business cycle, superior operators will start to pull from the herd, marginal operators will start to fall from the herd, right. and if you're passively invested, and I think we could pick at that phrase, but if you're passively invested, mm -hmm. you own the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. Well, in an accelerating expansion environment, the good is the good and the bad is the good. They all go up and down together. Right. As the cycle matures, that becomes less of the case. And so we have been uh, on this idea of active share, uh, sort of being the better part of portfolio construction. Mm -hmm. It has not worked out, uh, but I think this episode we talked about last fall over and over sort of solidifies this idea. You'll start to see winners from losers. Yeah. Growth. Um, we, we're late cycle, but you also think there are things that can happen to extend the cycle even more, to make it an even longer cycle. So what are the things that you think might happen, which is a, like yet another reason why you don't think a recession is imminent? So what we have to see, we have to see the U.S. economy, which has been driven by consumer spending, especially over the last year with the tax cut, move to capital spending. And the reason we're focused on capital spending is that's something that can make the pie bigger. What are investors focusing on? Well, the market's going to give a longer leash to return on invested capital. Right? Yeah. So whatever the highest maxim, you know, whatever the profit maximizing thing is, is what the market will be interested in. Buying back my shares at a premium seems like a pretty good idea from an investor's perspective. But I think you're, you hit on an important point, which is that if you look at the traditional FP&A, financial planning and analysis process, mm -hmm. companies know what they need. They know what the demand side of the, co of the equation is. But it takes time for them to say, is this expenditure worthwhile? Will we derive the return on investment? That's been a question mark, not to say the least of which is that we only just got you know, final clarification on a lot of the IRS guidelines as it relates. So this is the right. first year we're really coming through where companies can take a solid look at how much money they have in the kitty, what their needs are, whether they return that money to investors or whether they put that money back into the business. One of the interesting things, and you, you all did, a, a, which assets uh, perform better and which perform worse in 2018, and it yeah. turns out that cash was the best performing asset class in 2018 for the first time in I don't know how many years. But still didn't keep up with inflation. Still didn't keep up with right. inflation. What do you think is going to be the best performing asset class this year, Nick? I think stocks will. Um, and you want to go a little bit more in detail, which yeah. um, you were just saying value stocks, I mean, small cap, large cap, mid cap. Yeah, I think you'll find a, a scenario this year where you'll ultimately end up with a little bit of multiple expansion. We're very focused on this idea that the analyst community sort of overdid it in revising down the outlook for 2019, right? And we haven't seen that happen altogether that often mm -hmm. where our estimates are above the street's estimates, but mm -hmm. we, they are slightly so. And we see no compelling reason to take our expectations down. And they're not lofty to begin with. We're looking for 6 or 7% uh, on the bottom line. So I would expect some multiple expansion after we work through uh, and digest a little of the sell-off. And as we alleviate some of the issues related to trade, uh, the Fed continues to play along. Right. Um, we, should, we should see stocks do quite well. The other thing I would offer you is that 
you know, the market declining 20% late last year normally would be enough. And you'd say, gosh, is this going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy? Mm-hmm. But lots of asset classes were down, to your point, right? Cash was the yes. best performing. So if you're an investor in bonds or an investor in commodities, we've seen notable uh, energy-related hedge fund shutter. Uh, that's basically everybody suffered. And so when you come back from that, it's not surprising we've seen beta do quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, beta rallies will tend to fade. Uh, and and so beta rallies meaning that the indexes, right? Yeah, yeah that the that market people are just not, coming. We sold too much. We want to come right, back. Right, we want to come back in the markets But overall. then we will need to transition to an alpha market. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that's that selectivity bias. That's where we do have that value conversation. We think cyclicals are well positioned here as the cycle continues to mature. So, Don, one of the things that you told me, uh, again, in another pre-interview, was that you said don't expect the typical hedge against stock market declines of, in treasuries to buying treasuries as a non-correlated asset to work going forward. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so we've come through a two-decade period where you had an interesting correlation between stocks and bonds, where every large stock market sell-off was pretty easily hedged with something like a 10-year note because bond yields would fall. Right, 10-year treasury note. Mm -hmm. But if you go further back than the late 90s, it didn't always work. Oh. So that's not all that typical if we take a long historical view that you have that nice hedge available. What's interesting is if we are at full employment or close to full employment and we do see rising wages, we see a little bit of upward pressure on inflation, I don't think that's enough inflation to hurt the economy, but it may be enough inflation to start to change that asset allocation matrix. And so thinking that you can hedge stocks with bonds easily probably has to be rethought. So how should we rethink it? What's, what's the non-correlated asset with which we would hedge our stock portfolios? So you could hedge stocks with fixed income, but mm-hmm. it probably has to have some credit work behind it. So I wouldn't say you can't hedge stocks with fixed income. I would just say you can't hedge stocks with bonds the with easy the, way. Right, with the so 10 More work note. has to be right. done there. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, one of the other things, if you think about this from the perspective of what are investors actually going to do, as opposed to just thinking about it from an institutional or academic perspective, right. is you'll probably see increased flows into market neutral vehicles as a hedge for uh, credit. Mm-hmm. not necessarily as an offset in their equity allocation, right? Because you can make money in a choppy market. Um, if there's one investment we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio, you want to, what would you think that we should be investing in? So in a diversified portfolio, what I've seen is a mixing of asset classes where clients are buying stocks that look like bonds and bonds that look like stocks. And I think that's an interesting hybrid <laughs> mix to consider uh, over time, right? If the uh, indexes are driving flows into certain buckets, trying to take a, a contrarian view makes some sense to me. All right. So stocks that look like bonds would be dividend-paying stocks? Could be dividend-paying stocks. Right. Could be and bonds that look like stocks are... Con- high yield. High yield. Yeah. Something of that All right. sort. So just explain that, the theory behind that again. So <laughs> I, I guess I see a lot of algorithmic trading. I see a lot of allocation based on checkboxes. Right. And so could we move against that and find some interesting opportunities? Yeah. Nick. Well, I think, you know, listen, any investor who doesn't have a, a super high risk tolerance should have a well-managed global multi-asset allocation fund. Strategus has one. There's many people that have them uh, out there. That's going to let you sleep very easy at night. If you happen to think there's a little more opportunity uh, out there and you do want to put things in for the longer term, mid-cap value, maybe in technology, maybe in healthcare areas of development that over the long term have shown themselves to outperform, 
uh, will probably over the long term do so again this time. So Nick Monsack, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Don Rissmiller as well, both of you from Strategus Research Partners. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Consuelo. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is no matter how tempting, avoid market timing. The body of research showing the cost of being out of the market keeps growing. Remember the study about how missing out in the 25 best days in the stock market over the 45-year period between 1970 and 2015 meant the difference between a nearly 2,000% gain and one of under 400%? Well, a more recent analysis by Cambridge Associates titled Decades of Data finds the cost of not being invested can also be a global phenomenon. Being out of the market for just two quarters since 1900 reduced cumulative real returns on UK equities by more than 50%. Results were even worse in the US where missing the best two quarters in the last century cut cumulative real returns by more than two thirds. It turns out the toughest decision after getting out, usually done in times of market stress to avoid declines, is when to get back in, often done too late after a powerful rebound. The moral of this story, once you decide your stock market exposure, stick with it and don't try to time it. You will suffer the pain, but most importantly, participate in the gain. Next week, our focus will be on global income opportunities with Eaton Vance's Kathleen Gaffney, whose search for income knows no boundaries. In this week's extra feature available on WealthTrack.com, we have two interesting financial book recommendations from our guests. And please feel free to share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for spending time with us. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.